This is Dustin Garrick for the In Common Podcast. In this episode, Hida and I speak with Giulio Baccaletti, author of the new book, Water, a Biography. Giulio is a speaker, writer, an entrepreneur, and also honorary research associate at the Smith School of Enterprise and the Environment at the University of Oxford. Trained as a physicist, Giulio left academia about 15 years ago to work in senior strategic positions at McKinsey and Company, and most recently, the Nature Conservancy, where he served as its chief strategy officer. During this time, he started moonlighting as a writer and storyteller, culminating in Water, a Biography, which was published last year. We discussed the book, cited as one of The Economist's best book of 2021, in which Julio argues that humanity's relationship with water can explain the rise of modern political institutions. Specifically, he argues that the rise of the modern republic is linked to the central role water had in society and still has today, with evidence from ancient civilization, the Roman Empire, and the American West. Ari Shapiro of National Public Radio called the book one of the most ambitious books that he's read in a long time. It is both deep and broad. Here we dig deeper beneath the headlines into the political and institutional theory at the heart of the book, discussing the role of the state, the opportunities and limits of self-organization, and the ongoing quest to move past the legacy of Wittfogel and his ideas of a hydraulic society. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Thanks again for joining. Uh, Giulio Baccaletti joining us today, and I've been looking forward to this conversation for some time. Uh, author of the book Water, a biography, and a background, an eclectic background from academia to McKinsey Consulting to your more recent role as Chief Strategy Officer at Nature Conservancy. And we're really grateful to, to bring you into the conversation with the In Common audience. And we wanted to start by getting to know you for this audience and sharing with us your origin story. Uh, how does a physicist write a book on the history of water and political theory? Um, bring, <laughs> us, bring us along your journey, Julio. I, well, very good. Well, it's a great pleasure to be here, uh, Justin, and thank you for inviting me. It's, um, it's wonderful to have this conversation. Um, well, so how did I end up writing this? So it's, um, it was a bit of a meandering path. I mean, looking back, it makes uh, sense, but, uh, you know, it took, uh, it took me, uh, a number of, of years to kind of land here. I started out, as you were saying, life as a physicist and particularly as a climate scientist. Most of my, um, you know, my graduate work was in atmospheric and oceanic sciences or geophysical fluid dynamics, as it was called back then. Um, and then much of my research, uh, when I was at MIT was on, um, kind of physical oceanography and its relationship to climate. And so I was writing things that were interesting to me and several other people, but not that many. And as many, uh, you know, uh, experience when in academia at some point sort of have this moment where you think, well, maybe I should be doing something in the, you know, quote, real world and quote, although, you know, in many ways, you know, no world is real and all of them are real in some in some appropriate sense. And so I left uh, academia. I should say that if you're a physical oceanographer and you don't want to be one anymore, it's not obvious what you do. And uh, so I ended up in, uh, in McKinsey and Company, mostly by accident, to be perfectly frank, but with this belief that I could bring kind of my training in climate science and environmental sciences to bear on sort of big world problems. And I was very quickly uh, uh, suffused of that notion because actually nobody at the time wanted to talk about climate. This was the early 2000s and it wasn't actually particularly trendy 
um, uh, topic, except that I, I hit on this point, which is if I translated all of the climate uh, phenomenology into water language, then suddenly people responded. You know, water has a felt experience and a concreteness to it that uh, climate at the time didn't. I think today people understand a bit more what climate and climate change might mean. But at the time, people weren't connecting the dots. And as a climate scientist, water is just an expression of, or the behavior of water in the landscape is simply an expression of the climate system and our efforts to uh, control it. And so, so I ended up spending a lot of time working on water issues that way. And uh, because this was, uh, you know, McKinsey Company, it was mostly an economic lens to water. The questions that I was trying to answer, mostly in uh, in developing countries, although not only, but mostly in developing countries, were big sort of, you know, national strategy plans around water security or agricultural productivity or uh, infrastructural development. Uh, so they were all always sort of economic uh, lenses, but. Every time you started a uh, conversation about water with a decision maker, whether it's a minister of finance or a minister of water or minister of agriculture, uh, very quickly the conversation would turn political uh, in a sort of you know big P sense of power and identity, and and so it was this interesting experience for a number of years. I did this work in in a, in a variety of countries, from Jordan to Ethiopia to Mexico to India to. Uh, China to Brazil, South Africa. I mean, it was a, a pretty kind of unique portfolio of experiences. But this one constant was that you, you'd enter these conversations with an engineering question, which would turn into an economic answer, which would then lead you very quickly to a conversation about about politics, about power, and about institutions. And, um, you know, something Dustin, you and I have talked a lot about over the years, you know, this institutional architecture that underwrites the various negotiations that happen on the water resources of a of a country or of a community, and um, then I, you know, I left McKinsey uh, about ten years ago, and then joined the Nature Conservancy, doing in some ways similar things because you know even in a, an environmental NGO, you're ultimately using the tools of economics to try and scale impact in, in some appropriate sense. But again, same experience, right? From a different angle and from a different sort of uh, entry point from civil society. But still, it was very clear that the conversations that I was having and that started in a very sort of uh, reductive uh, lens of uh, benefits and costs and, and, and sort of uh, economic language very quickly then turned into conversations about identity and culture and politics and so forth. So I... So you know, so that's kind of what got me to writing this book, because I happen to think, as I think many of us do, that we are at a bit of an infection point for many countries in terms of the state of the water resources, um, which doesn't mean that we're going to run out, obviously, but it does mean that people have ahead of them a number of choices uh, that as communities, as societies, they will have to face. What do we invest in? How do we manage our resources? Who, who benefits from them? What does our landscape look like? And uh, and there's a real risk, you know, a growing risk actually in 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 in, in sort of um, in today's world that the answer that people come to is oh we'll just ask the scientist, you know we'll just ask the sort of technocrats of uh, you know the, the situation and ask them to solve this thing for us, and and I'm convinced that in fact that's the wrong answer. The wrong answer is that these all of these questions are susceptible to political and social debate, they should be, but people need language to articulate their position and need language to 
to um, kind of describe their desires and their, their identity. And, and I thought, well, one way to give people that language is to use history. Um, is, you know, the sort of history is a process of constructing that identity and that language for people. And, and so, and so I decided to write a book that would tell the story of the relationship between society and water. Uh, and in many ways, it's a, it's a partial story for a variety of reasons, but it's a, it's an attempt at giving coherence to the, to the journey that humanity has been on. Um, you know, from the Neolithic to the present, but with a purpose, which is not the historian's purpose, that is to examine the past, but rather with the purpose of providing people narratives that make sense of the present and our relationship with water in the present, you know, as, as described by, you know, the, the ideas and the building blocks that have been developed over the centuries and millennia. So, anyway, so that's a long answer to your question, Dustin. But it's uh, that's how a physicist ends up writing a history book about uh, water. Oh, well, that's excellent. I'm tempted to dig even in deeper how you came to fish and oceanography and the passion for water. But we'll we'll hold that and come back if we have time. So, one follow up, and then I wanted to invite uh, Hita to uh, to join us in this discussion because the. The immediate reaction was that uh, you described this experience you had with leaders, political leaders, uh, and recognition about the importance of power. And then you um, turned to, to history to try to make sense of the relationship between water and power over time. All right, during this time, your engagement with the literature on politics, on institutions, is that something that, that you're self-teaching? Is it something that you are doing as as a part of your um, ways of making sense of the conversations you're having. I mean, your your book, as we'll come to in a moment, is really deeply researched in areas from history to political theory. Where did you get that kind of exposure? Well, so a few, few thoughts there. Um, in part, it's just my, you know, my um, training and history. You know, I grew up reading Gramsci's letters to his kids. You know, what I mean, like I come from a background where it's not, you know, political science and history is sort of part of what you breathe. In part, um, it's just interesting. I mean, I'm endlessly fascinated by history of ideas in the sort of Isaiah Berlin sense of, uh, you know, and so, so there's uh, there's there's that. There's also I think a personal journey that I'm, I'm on as somebody who ultimately deeply cares about environmental issues, and I want to call myself an environmentalist, an environmentalist in, but I'm really quite deeply uncomfortable with what environmentalism looks today and how it functions and how, in a way, how thin political theory around environmental um, uh, environmental beliefs is, at least in the mainstream, right? I you know, was part of the leadership group of the largest conservation organization on the planet. And, you know, these issues around politics and political institutions and the nature of the state, for example, played no role in our theory of change. None at all. Right. I mean, I think that's uh, that's both egregious and and a problem. Right. Um, and so uh, and so there's that. Right. So and then I myself taught in part. I mean, I you know, the great thing about uh, being a. Uh, uh, a graduate student in the United States is that you end up creating a network of people who don't study the same things that you do. And so I'm blessed with a network of political scientists and historians that in part help me kind of navigate this. But I should say that the book is not has no uh, pretense of being a 
you know, uh, as sort of uh, pushing the frontier on political science or on, on, on history or historiography. It just uses that language. And, you know, I've tried to make it defensible, right? I mean, the last thing I wanted to do was write something that couldn't stand up to uh, to scrutiny, that doesn't mean that people will, will, will agree with it, but uh, but I wanted to be defensible intellectually. But still, it's a it's a book that's targeted to the general readership, not to to the academic uh, to the academic world. Okay, well, we'll get to the book just in one moment, but I'm going to pause here. Yeah, um, Julia, I was I was also looking at listening to what you were just saying about how water has a certain language uh, that sort of connects across um, various. Uh, stakeholders, uh, for want of a better word. And then I was just thinking about why you think water has that power. Is it perhaps something to do with, say, the institutions that you were engaging with at the time? And did those experiences sort of shape the lens that you've taken on in the book, which also talks about how water has this power of, you know, um, well, not, but not exactly state making, but influencing state, um, uh, society, state relationships, and so on. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a good question. I mean, I, there's there's uh, there's several levels to the answer. I mean, at some most basic and physical level, why does it have this role, or why do I believe it has this role? Rather, um, you know, there's there's a there's a the climate scientist in me that you know knows that water phenomena are, are really the only environmental phenomena that operate on time scales that are salient to. Uh, you know, community and human processes and economic processes, right? I mean, there are other forces in nature that operate, uh, but, you know, geology doesn't really move that fast. You know, earthquakes occasionally happen, but for the most part, it doesn't shape uh, our life. Whereas, you know, water does work, physical work. You know, jewels are expended every second, and you have to build infrastructure to oppose that force all the time or manage the landscape to do that all the time. And so it inevitably draws you into this discussion because the static environment that we live in, all of us who are you know fortunate enough to live in, in rich countries, that static environment is, in fact, the unstable balancing of two opposing forces, the one that the climate system exercises on the landscape all the time and the one that we exercise in return by constructing, you know, through the infrastructure that we've constructed and through the management that we've uh, we've put in place. So that's one answer, right? I mean, it's, it's this force and, and I think it's pervasive. I mean, I think that, and I, I think, you know, before we had the resources or the institutions as well that our social resources to construct the kind of, of infrastructure that makes the landscape static and we experience the the force of water on a daily basis, you know, inevitably water played a much more present role in people's culture and life. And so, you know, that's part of what I try to reveal to the reader in the book is, is you know, for most of our history, uh, water was a pretty present uh, part of the story. So that's one, one answer. The second answer, of course, that I did a lot of my work in developing countries. And so most of these were agrarian economies or, you know, dominantly by agriculture as a significant part of the of their economies. And so, you know, the politicians that I was talking to, for them, water was still a very high sort of political issue simply because it's a fundamental input to uh, food production and for agricultural production. And so it was salient to them in a way that it wouldn't be salient. You know, most developed countries don't have a ministry of water, you know, 
uh, interestingly enough, because you know they should in some ways, but they don't, uh, and it and it shows right because they actually they're actually pretty static in the development of, of the water resources. Um, so that's a kind of a second uh, a second level, I guess, to to the answer. Um, and then the third, frankly. Um, more pop culturally uh, version of this, which is just I just from experience, you know, water is immediately um, relevant and understandable by you know everybody. Uh, you know, when I when I talk to people, when I get my haircut, and I I talk to my my barber about what I do. If I talk to him about climate change, we, you know, the conversation ends pretty quickly. If I talk to him about water, oddly enough, you know, we don't talk. About, you know, he has no more experience of water than anybody else has in the city, which is not very much. But he will tell me that the next wars will be fought over water. So some of the house, Sarah Gelden, sort of shows up, you know, in the words of a barber thirty years later, whereas you know the story of climate doesn't as much. Hmm. Well, thanks so much, Julia. And by now, I think the listener is, is waiting at the edge of their seat to actually hear about the book. And I want to give us a chance to to give uh, an overview in, in a nutshell of the book's argument. And I just would ask that you provide, you know, first, the the main argument, and then second, the neglected part of the argument, the part that maybe is most overlooked or misunderstood so far in, in the reception to the book. Yeah. Well, the, the the main story that the book tells, which isn't its argument, but is the story that it tells, is the dialectic relationship between society and uh, and uh, water over the course of uh, human history from the Neolithic to today. It's a it's a very Eurocentric story, um, partly because what I'm doing is taking the institutions that are dominant today and asking the question where in their structure can we detect the legacy of the relationship between water and society when they were constructed? And so, you know, I spend a fair amount of time, uh, you know, on uh, abramitic religion and on, uh, um, and on uh, democracy and the rise of democracy in antiquity and sort of the cultural traces of antiquity that have reached us today through the Middle Ages, for example, carry with them the genetics, if you will, of the relationship between Ancient societies and and water, you know the and and in, in in that case I you know I have to go all the way back into myth making right and so sort of the epics of Gilgamesh and Enkidu and 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 so forth so on, um, and then as I get to the present the book is chronological right so essentially divided into four parts the first being about antiquity the second being about sort of the Middle Ages all the way up to um, to uh, to modern period in the historian's sense, and then the third part is the 20th century, which in many ways is the hydraulic century, the century in which, you know, water disappears because we work on it so much, and then and then it, it gets us to the present. Um, and so all of that is built, the building blocks of all of that is a combination of political history and history of ideas, and how these ideas interact with the experience that people had of water uh, over time. And so, you know, in the Middle Ages, you talk about, you know, the legal systems that emerge out of the Roman tradition and get spread all over the world and the role that water has in that or the rise of the you know Renaissance Republic and and its uh, its function as an institution to mediate different interests in northern Italy and then in the Netherlands and then in you know Civil War England and so on all the way then to the 20th century when you know I really focus on the American experience which to this day still frames how for better or for worse um 
most countries think water should look like, right? I mean, the way in which modernity, I use this word, which makes my historian and sociologist friends, uh, you know, uh, but I still like using it. And I think it means something to those who are reading it. So I'll say it again, modernity, right? So the way in which modernity is represented, uh, you know, it is striking that Tokyo and Los Angeles and London, Milan and you know, Dartmouth and Sheffield all have remarkably different climatologies. If you know, you were living in any of these places 10,000 years ago, you wouldn't have the same experience of water at all. But, you know, if you live in Tokyo, Los Angeles, London, Sheffield uh, today, you know, you don't wave anything going to work. You, you know, mostly travel on a piece of cement and, you know, the only water you experience is the one that comes out of shower or tap. That's pretty remarkable, right? And that's in many ways the result of, you know, um, the American uh, engineered progressive, you know, progressive movement and the engineered modernity that they've conceived for all that. And so I spend a lot of time on that. And then, and then I end with the sort of geopolitics of the present, you know, with the with the rise of China as the new high, you know, uh, uh, the new plumber in chief of the world and its role in in China. So that's the. So that's sort of a story. The argument, which is actually rarely picked up, um, and maybe you know, maybe it's a good thing because it's a, it's a, you know, it's a pretty esoteric argument in many ways. But it's the book is a Republican book. I actually make, uh, you know, what what I wish to do, I what I started to do, and this book is the first step on a journey because I think it, it goes beyond water. Is a is an argument for environmental republicanism, for the idea that we have to actually, if if the environment and water being a symptom of it matters so much to our future, then th- we cannot not have a conversation about the structure of the state um, and the relationship between citizens and state in that context. And uh, and I happen to be, you know, I'm Italian, I'm an heir to Machiavelli, and so, you know, republics matter a great deal. My town of Bologna was run as a republic for a number of centuries, as were most of northern Italy's cities, and that legacy is what created 19th century republicanism and what essentially formed the Republican Project in America and all other Republican projects around the world, some yet sends Republican Project in China and all these other things, right? And, and it's a really powerful idea, which means very little to most people. Uh, you know, three quarters of the countries of the world are republics, and even the ones that are not, the monarchies of the world still have mostly constitutions that are Republican in nature. But, you know, people don't know what that means, you know, and, uh, and I think at the heart of it is this question of creating political institutions that not only bestow rights on people, but also create duties to engage in a process of balancing individual libertas, freedom, liberty, and collective benefit. Uh, that's certainly the Roman uh, tradition. Now, there's a there's a political philosophy school of this that's very well known. I'm not inventing anything. I mean, Richard Petit and you know Quentin Skinner, and there's sort of a, there's a school of thought that's organised around this question of republicanism, but it's mostly framed in civic liberty terms. Their questions are more about the relationship between freedom and uh, and societal uh, and, and social living, you know, sort of social sources of power. Um, they don't speak about the environment all that much, uh, which is kind of interesting. Uh, but I think in a way we need to engage in a conversation about what does a republic look like when uh, it's, um, it, you know, when the management of the landscape becomes central, not just to the identity, but also to the functioning of uh, of society. We haven't had to worry about this for, you know, at least 100 years. Uh, but now I think we do. And so it's, it's, it's time. And I, 
I worry that environmentalism and, and sort of environmental activists don't even have the language for that. Uh, and so you end up in these conversations about, you know, bad actors and right and wrong and sort of ethical language as opposed to using uh, uh, political language. I have uh, many more thoughts on this, but that's, in a nutshell, that's the, the, the underlying argument that I'm trying to build for myself, frankly, as an environmentalist who's searching for a, a theory of the state. Um, and, um, and that's the one that I think is, is sometimes picked up, but it's, it's, it's sort of, you know, it's under the surface. I'm not making a, I'm not making, uh, you know, um, I'm not advocating for, for a particular answer in this book. Excellent. I mean, in fact, for this discussion, I mean, one of the, the goals really is to dig into the implicit and explicit theory of the state that underpins your work, that underpins your argument. And then as a corollary to explore what you see to be the opportunity and limits for informality and self-organization by communities in relation to their environments. So I want to dig very much into uh, this, this argument that you set out. And I wanted to start with this observation you make in the book that this history contains a diversity of solutions and ways in which people and polities have organized themselves in response to their water challenges. And, uh, and then over time, that diversity gets overwhelmed or uh, obscured by this process of convergence to the Republican ideal, you know, out of Rome and, and the evolution from there. And I think this very much relates to a lot of interest from the audience of in common, which has been in heavily influenced by the work of Eleanor Ostrom and other colleagues uh, who have been developing institutional theory to better understand uh, the diversity of institutional arrangements that have developed in response to uh, local challenges and problems. And in particular, to move beyond the bipolar world of, of markets uh, or states in terms of the options for, for how we organize ourselves. And one of the aspects that I think comes up a lot in your book is this tension, um, this, this conversation that you're, you're having uh, perhaps with, uh, with some of the potential critics about determinism, the notion mm -hmm. that, uh, let me see if I can quote you here that environmental conditions did not cause the rise of the state, but they did help to shape it. And I note that in that early part of the book, uh, the, the antiquity portion, the end of each chapter, you come back to saying that the environmental conditions did not shape uh, the political organizations in place, but they influenced their evolution. And, uh, and this, this is part of a longstanding conversation in water studies. Um, wrestling with the ghosts of, of Whit Fogel, who you, you do touch on towards the end of the book, yeah. and his hydraulic um, society thesis, which posited that complex water challenges breed a despotic or totalitarian state because the need to centralize resources and labors to labor to construct infrastructure that control that controls water. And mm -hmm. I just wonder if you can kind of elaborate a little bit about your uh, your theory of the state in that context and and how you've tried to um, move towards this environmental republic argument without moving towards a reductionist view of the state. Yeah, well, and it's you know it's complicated because I'm I'm trying to do all of that 
outside of the bounds of the discipline, because I'm not a political scientist and I don't speak to political scientists as I'm writing this. And so part of that was, you know, you're right, there was a, a little bit of uh, sort of preemptive defense there, just to kind of signal the fact that I'm aware, you know, as as much as one has to simplify some of these things, I'm aware of the sort of pitfalls of this, uh, of this issue and of the history of that, of that argument. Essentially, you know, just as a kind of side note, my um, editor, Pantheon, his first, you know, he's been around for quite some time, but his very first job in the industry was to edit the reissue of Wittfogel's Oriental Despotism. Uh, and his mentor in editing had actually edited the, the book the first time it came out. And I guess it was the Evening Investor Press when it, first, uh, when it was first uh, published. Uh, so there's also this kind of funny uh, kind of literary connection, if you will, um, between Wittfogel and myself. Um, but yes, I mean, I, I'm not, uh, you know, I, I, I do believe that the, the book is predicated on the idea that societies have agency, that, you know, it, it's not a purely materialist uh, argument. That material conditions matter, but they don't determine, right? But the question is, what choices do we have in responding to the material conditions? If they matter, what choices do we have? So the book is trying to generate um, or provoke at least a discussion about the options that, uh, that we have, not to create a causal theory for development, right? And so that's partly why I, I keep uh, doing that, because particularly as you go back in time and as you lose track of any written sources, uh, then it becomes so easy to make these arguments on thousands of years, you know. It rained over here and suddenly, you know, society changed over there. And, you know, it, it, people have agency all through their history, but that, you know, doesn't mean that these uh, these natural events don't uh, don't matter. So that's kind of the first thing to say about those uh, those comments that I sort of sprinkle through. Um, and then, you know, when I was writing it, I focused um, on the state because I happen. I mean, this is part that's not written in the book, but I happen to believe that we are m many of the environmental issues that we are trying to solve will have to rely on. On the modern nation territorial states, um, we are likely going to turn our landscapes in infrastructure for development writ large, right? So we, you know, we are in the process right now of turning and going beyond water this in this moment, but we are in the process of turning, uh, you know, switching from fossil fuels to renewable energy. And renewable energy essentially means that you are using a day of sunlight every day as opposed to a million days of sunlight in one place. And so it's an extensive, it's conversion of a problem that's kind of localized. At the end, the, infra, the entire oil industry, the footprint of that industry is smaller than Qatar, right? But if you start having solar plants and wind farms all over the place to substitute that, regardless of what Elon Musk believes, at the moment with the technology we have, we're going to cover a fair amount of ground. And lots of people will have lots of things sticking out in their backgrounds, right? So we're turning the landscape into the energy infrastructure of the of society. We're turning the landscape into the adaptation infrastructure, right? We need to do things on the landscape relatively quickly because we're not likely in many countries going to be able to build a lot more infrastructure. So we're going to have to use different management practices on the landscape, for example. So we're turning the landscape into our security infrastructure. We have all these commitments to biodiversity, which, you know, presumably mean, uh, you know, commitment to large tracts of unfragmented landscapes that are devoted to uh, biodiversity. Uh, we are obviously committed to producing more food uh, in different places than we are today. So land 
is going to play a much bigger role in the 21st century than they did in the 20th century, and water runs all over it. And so in, in part, water is a good proxy to think about how we deal with this bigger problem of uh, land management. And in the book, I'm focusing mostly on the on the kind of unit of the, of the society at the, at, the, at, the, at the state level, because I think a lot of these things require interventions that require large underwriting, uh, large enough that you need somebody who's printing money to do them. Uh, and so that's what I'm focusing about. The, the last thing I say, Dustin, on this is uh, that doesn't mean – I don't know that it's a, it's a debate between that – and a common uh, story. In other words, I think there's a there's a high degree of subsidiarity between these problems, right? So you can still have turbo in Switzerland and have people sort of manage their own little uh, system. That does not solve, however, the uh, nature of the adaptation problem that the whole of China faces or that the whole of Italy faces, right? They're operating at different uh, at different levels, so they can be nested. Um, so, listening to that, I was also thinking about the histories of water infrastructure, which have a lot of colonial influence. Um, in the sense, uh, you were talking about American water histories, and the whole history of water infrastructure in America is rooted on colonial ideas of hygiene and sanitation and experiences with plague and, you know, all of those things, um, as is with most of England's colonies, um, former colonies. And um, that was, uh, that's one, one part of this. But then I was also reflecting on what you said earlier about how society has agency and, um, and your cho- questions about what choices do we have uh, in the matter. And I think my question really is, how do you view power in this dynamic of historically produced water, uh, water landscapes, shall we call them that? Um, uh, mm. You know, and, and, did that kind of shape your thinking in a bit, a bit about you know the modern oh, state? And, yeah, know. no, it, it does, and you know I had to make some pretty draconian cuts on the story, right? So there's not a lot of um, problematizing and critiquing within the sort of individual histories. One could spend a lot of time, um, you know, analyzing and you know exploring, and lots of people have exploring this question of power distribution within society and, and and winners and losers and so but but I I suppose I was trying to make a, there's some macro points that I was trying to get across right so um, the development of the landscape is an instrument for transforming society and development of water is an instrument for transforming society and it does matter that um, how that is done is legitimate right uh, now, what does that mean? What, where does the legitimacy come from? And you know, you, one could endlessly debate the, that point. But at a minimum, you know, if you think about the development of, uh, you know, I make a big deal out of the Tennessee Valley Authority example, which is problematic in all sorts of ways, and you know, has but it's also been overstudied. So it's actually quite an interesting uh, example. And there are some facts that are, I think, relatively clear. You know, the um, if you were the World Bank and applied your metrics of development to the Tennessee Valley Authority from 1900 to the 1930s and 40s, you would uh, conclude it was a massive development success. Also, things happened to those people. And, and at the same time, the fact that no other Tennessee Valley Authority was replicated in American history because it was seen as a 
vast overreach of federal power and a centralized exercise of sort of authoritarianism, essentially, within the domains of, of America, is also an interesting example of how, in the end, the kind of complicated politics, you know, at different levels of the United States, uh, for better or for worse, you know, put a check on the exercise of that central, you know, federal uh, power. Um, the tech, the techne, the technology uh, associated with Tennessee was then exported in all sorts of the other places. And so you might imagine that it was the same experience. But of course, it was a completely different experience. Because while the technical aspects of the Tennessee Valley Authority were similar in terms of engineering and planning, and et cetera, et cetera, the underlying political theory was completely different. Um, and, uh, and so that mattered a great deal for me because pointed pointing that fact out mattered to me. And it may be obvious to um, to those who spend their life studying these things, but if you're out in the society and kind of dealing with these things, you know, I worked a lot in Ethiopia, for example. I worked a lot in in, uh, in the Horn of Africa at a time when, you know, Chinese firms were showing up all over the place building water infrastructure for the local governments. And the interesting Thing, you know, so the engineering is completely defensible. I mean, you can debate whether you want a dam or not a dam, and but the problem wasn't so much the engineering or the technical solution, but it was the politics surrounding this infrastructure. And you, you know, you realize that they were, you know, these projects were happening in a context of very weak polit- local political institutions and very strong um, exogenous institutions. Um, and so, so that was kind of the, you know, so I was trying to kind of you know, in, in very sort of uh, uh, black and white terms, trying to uh, highlight the distinction between those two uh, those two stories, right? Because um, I do think that there's a, well, we now know there is a revival of imperialism yeah, in the world. And water, America engaged in imperialism all over the place with its Tennessee Valley Authority, but it didn't do so in the Tennessee Valley, I don't believe. Uh, one can still lament the outcome. I mean, there are lots of things that didn't work well. But if you read David Lilienthal's uh, writing, for example, he was the first director of the Tennessee Valley Authority. He was convinced he was exercising, a, he was building an institution of democracy, Right. Um, that wasn't the case in Helmand Valley in Afghanistan when people, you know, produced the Helmand Valley Authority. Um, so that sharp distinction is what I was trying to draw on. And so, for example, in the case of the American the construction of the American state and its relationship to water, I don't spend a lot of time talking about, you know, very contested and problematic issues like tribal rights and water and the relationship with, with the, with the, you know, with the First Nations in Canada. But, but I was trying to make this broader brushstrokes um, argument. Julio, maybe we can um, pick up on the Tennessee Valley Authority and, and the legacy, um, the outsized legacy that it has. Right, so maybe to start with, um, what do you see as the, the model or paradigm behind the Tennessee Valley Authority and, and what kinds of work have you seen it, it do? in the rest of the world? Well, it's an incredibly evocative idea, and it means different things to different people. So it ended up becoming, a, a you know, like the details, I think, are very specific to the American experience. If you actually, in fact, I, I sometimes wonder, apparently 11 million people visited the Tennessee Valley Authority while it was being developed, you know, and while David Lilenthal was involved in it. And I sometimes wonder what they took out of it because uh, Adrian Daninos, the designer of the Aswan Dam, 
visited the Tennessee Valley Authority, and some of the how concluded out of that journey that building the Aswan Dam was an application of those principles. Uh, and, you know, um, Jean Monnet, which I don't talk about in the book, but Jean Monnet, the founder of Europe, of the European Union, right? Uh, the first European citizen who was a Americophile and a great admirer of Roosevelt's America, described the European Union as the Tennessee Valley Authority of Europe. Um, so, Part of the power of that idea is that it sort of transcended the details of how it was implemented and has become a, has become, you know, dare I say it again, a modernist ideal. Um, you know, it's, it's become a way of interpreting what the modern state looks like on the ground. Um, now, I think there are some principles that are technically common, you know, this idea of integrated water resource management, which those of us who work in water sort of are endlessly familiar with, um, the idea that you would essentially build projects within a system that's trying to achieve some benefits that are measurable, and that you would coordinate resources to achieve these things. The fact that you would create institutions that have to uh, compensate for the social and economic costs that are borne by the people that live in this thing. I mean, the Tennessee Valley Authority ultimately built 53 dams in the Tennessee and Cumberland rivers. Uh, and those had impacts on the population, the local population. It also had benefits, right? People got duration out of electricity. Um, so so there, are, there are a set of institutional innovations, I suppose, that were uh, not least the fact that it was, you know, I think Roosevelt described it as the, 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 a public institution clothed with the, uh, with the power of a private entity, right? So this idea of a corporatized public entity, which has gone in and out of fashion in, wa in, in water world, but uh, I think is ultimately probably the right answer for most water utilities, actually, the corporatized public entity. So an entity that's, you know, property of the state or the public, but that runs itself with an explicit balance sheet and operates on a balance, uh, you know, uh, uh, project finances things as opposed to, uh, budget financing projects, which is what the public sector tends to do, right? Public sector doesn't have a balance sheet typically. So all of these things are are sort of the legacy of that experience, and they all happen to be souped up in one thing. And then, you know, it became it sort of transcended that experience by being marketed to whole, the whole world, right? I mean, David Lilenthal himself made a living out of traveling around the world and uh, you know showing up in Pakistan or in Yangtze Valley and or in the Mekong and uh, but, you know, I know that Gilbert Weiss, you know, that various people sort of ended up exporting these ideas to um, to the rest of the world. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I you know, there's this book that Democracy in March that uh, David Linenthal wrote at, at one point, which is really interesting because it's an in, it's effectively an engineer, uh, a bit like I'm a scientist, writing a treatise which aspires to be a, a you know, political pamphlet. And it's quite makes for quite interesting reading. Uh, you know, because he thought he was building a grassroots uh, democracy uh, through the development of that institution. Whether he succeeded, I think, is, you know, we we live 60, you know, we live 100 years later, we can judge that. He couldn't at the time. But that was the spirit uh, I think he was, you know, he was trying to embody. It's really interesting because, you know, you, you started um, earlier in the discussion or with the comment that Tennessee Valley Authority, you know, is it still... Is it still relevant? And I think that its its legacy and influence is still pretty substantial. It's seen as as a benchmark, as a reference in development discussions around the world still. And it makes me think of discussions that many in the Commons governance literature are having about 
the dangers of panacea thinking, one size fits all, cure cure all solutions, and the stickiness of those paradigms, you know, long after some of their their limits have been exposed. And uh, I wonder if through your Although, you know, can I just, before you go on, I mean, on this particular point, I I do think that people sometimes underestimate how cunning and smart people then trying to prevent these things are. I mean, you know, I I do think that politicians are sometimes susceptible to, um, you know, to to kind of the the veneer of a particular idea, but that's just a way for then the technocrats to take over and sort of then shape it. I mean, the point I was making is that there are many instances of the Tennessee Valley Authority everywhere on the planet, including the Jordan Valley Authority. None of them look like the Tennessee Valley Authority in truth, other than the fact that they've all built some dams, you know. And so, you know, it, it just becomes a way of saying something that everybody thinks they agree on what it is, but in fact, it just creates the room for innovating without license. Fair enough. Yeah, I was actually going to turn to this this point exactly of, of where uh, do you see other ex- examples of uh, of of, temp- of paradigms or templates? And I'm just thinking of in the water policy and governance sector, you've got a range of countries, whether it's Singapore, the Netherlands, Australia, which now are associated with uh, an, an important model of water mm-hmm. management and implicit or explicit in them. Uh, an idea of the relationship between the state and the citizens and, and markets. And, and I wonder if you can point uh, in your book or from your experience with Nature Conservancy and otherwise to a few other influential examples and maybe compare that with the Tennessee Valley Authority. Yeah, the thing that makes the Tennessee Valley Authority different is that part of its story is a journey of how it happened. All of these other examples are, have the unfortunate property that people never think about how they got there. And so water markets, for example, you know, everybody, you know, Australian story is a well-known story, uh, but much more time is spent thinking about how effective or efficient the market is, but not as much time is spent thinking about how would a country go from not having one to having one. Uh, whereas the Tennessee Valley Authority was developed as a project. It was designed as a project, as a package that you could, you know, it had a start and an end. And the story that Lilienthal and others developed had this, you know, was a time, had a time dimension. You start here, you then build these things, you build these institutions, this happens and this happens, and you end up with the Tennessee Valley Authority. So it had this feeling of a recipe, whereas I think, you know, nature-based solutions is another example, right? So markets, nature-based solutions, the modern, the PUB of Singapore, these are all uh, examples of things that work in that context, but the pack, but people try to replicate the endpoints not necessarily the process has got to that end point. Mm. Uh, and that's an important distinction uh, because by not looking at the history, you end up then creating myths. So, you know, nature-based solutions is an example. I can't tell you how many times I've told the New York uh, Catskill story when I was at the Nature Conservancy. But of course, the Catskill story has nothing to do with nature-based solutions in truth. Right. I mean, the endpoint looks like a nature-based solution, but you know, this happened at the time of you know Moses. I mean, Robert Moses, right? A, a completely different moment. You know, this was essentially not that dissimilar from the development of the American West. It was, you know, a rich city bought a bunch of land. Uh, if you drain those, one of those, I, I think they're Shokan. I mean, one of the one of the uh, reservoirs. There's a village under there. Right? This is not. This is not taking an ecosystem and then, you know, uh, taking advantage of its function, it's a piece of landscaping. 
right, which took advantage of the fact that the eastern seaboard was reforesting and rich New Yorkers wanted to have some beautiful place to go to. Um, and again, you know, the, the famous National Academy of Sciences uh, a study that looked at the Catskills and did the sort of cost-benefit analysis that everybody sort of uh, uh, cites, you know, this idea that the alternative was to build a treatment works that costs billions compared to the few hundred millions a year that the, 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 the environmental department spends on, on kind of protecting these things. It's sort of ahistorical because of comparing apples to oranges. Had people done an investment in, water, in, in cleaning up uh, the, the rivers around New York City, maybe you would have landed on a different answer at the time. So I, I'm just saying that the thing that makes the Tennessee Valley Authority so powerful is that it's a story and it's a history that has a is in time, right? And there are very few things. And you know why? Because the thing about that's why I think I, I've hooked onto this Republican story because the Tennessee Valley Authority fit the kind of Rooseveltian rhetoric around the role of the state after the Progressive Era, right? Um, the problem with all these other things is that they fit a uh, ideology and a model and a story that actually has nothing to do with the way in which you got there. Australia can have a water market. Because it's spent, you know, whatever, 80 years engineering the Murray Darling. So once you've engineered it and you've underwritten all that infrastructure and you can move water from wherever to wherever, then, of course, you can build a, an integrated uh, market. And when you have a rich state that can underwrite the transition from the farmers that get left behind, of course you can. But, but you didn't get there by building the market and it evolved all the time. You needed all this infrastructure and state underwriting to make it happen. Singapore... You know, wonderful, but it's not a technology story. It's an authoritarian story. It's not, you know, this is not about, uh, and, and again, nature-based solutions. The problem is that it's embraced by ecologists and eco-modernists, but in fact, it's the result of exactly the same period that, uh, you know, and then, you know, it's it structures from the 30s and 40s. Then, of course, there's the, the politics of the Catskills in the 90s and the memorandum and all that stuff later on. Right? So that's, to me, that's why... We, we've never we've never subjected all these other cool ideas to the same hard light that we uh, subjected the Tennessee Valley Authority. Uh, and and the fact is that people can disagree on the premises and the political theory behind the TVA, but even in the harsh light, on its terms. It's it's a success and it's consistent with this story that is told about it. There's all these other things. People build myths about how nature-based... And in fact, then one of the things you realize working in the Nature Conservancy, for example, is it's really hard to scale any of these things because the story you tell that, oh, people just see the light and suddenly start investing in nature, that's not true. That's not true. That's not what happened in the things that have scaled. It may happen in the future. It certainly hasn't happened in the past. Hmm. That's great. And I wanted to, to jump on this notion that the process matters and the politics of the process matters because that resonates with a lot of us who are trying to take context seriously and to account for the, the dangers and limits of transplants of ideas that just are taken from one context and grafted into another. And I want to circle us back to uh, Hita's earlier question around uh, your perspective on power, how that would shape from the, by the people you were talking to. And and I'm particularly thinking about um, places in the world, whether it's uh, sub-Saharan Africa or parts of Latin America and, and, and Asia, where the kind of implicit and explicit notion of a powerful 
state um, is, is, is less viable, at least in the short term, in their water development paths. In many places, for example, where um, community-managed uh, water systems for irrigation or drinking water uh, or uh, tanker markets that are self-organized uh, and, and other kinds of, of more entrepreneurial responses to local challenges uh, are being attempted where some of the kind of prerequisites or preconditions for the large capital investments and other aspects that you've observed in more advanced and, and more precisely higher income uh, countries are, are not likely to be available or, or gonna be coming through you know, development aid and some of the complications there. I mean, to put it on a fine point, the question that, that, that I have is what are the opportunities and limits for self-organization and community managed responses, particularly when there are limited alternatives, um, you know, for, for a, a state capacity in the way that you've been arguing? Oh, sure. I mean, I, no, I think that there's, but even in places with high state capacity, I think there are opportunities for, uh, you know, community-based um, um uh, solutions. In fact, I mean, they exist. And in fact, in some cases, I mean, you know, you don't have to go to the American West and the sort of, uh, um, you know, here in Italy. I mean, I'm sitting in a in a, in a sort of layered system of locally managed medieval institutions that have survived for 800 years because, you know, so I my my parents. I'm you know, in Italy right now, they pay every year a little tax to the Bonifica Renana, which is the reclamation institution. But that reclamation institution is not the Bureau of Reclamation. That reclamation institution is a, is a legacy of uh, cooperative institutions that have existed since the 11th century, right? So I think that there's, there's enormous uh, opportunity. The one thing I would say is that I, I see these two things as dis uh, discussions on a completely different level. Uh, one issue is you know, second best options and solutions that, you know, give agency to people who live in a community and, and, uh, and what do you need to do, you know, to protect them and to give them the tools to manage, um, you know, their resources. And that's one issue. But then at the other level is the problem of not pretending that that leads you to a viable modern theory of the state. And I think that even in, you know, places like Ethiopia or others, I mean, in the end, people have the right to try and pursue a, a social organization where they have political agency within the state, because that's the unit that organizes much of their life, and that's the unit that gives them agency in the international community. They all have a passport, right? I mean, these things have boundaries still matter, and uh, citizenship still matters, and I guess my, you know, my uh, point in writing this book and the work that I've been doing also in other aspects of environmentalism is that I'm always struck by how solution orientated we are into the environmental world, whereas in fact I think that you know, the management of the planet, particularly now, and questions of fundamental political agency at the individual level are inseparable. Um, and, and not talking about, not having an opinion about whether people should have political agency and what institutions do give them political agency in a society that's governed by a state, uh, you know, takes environmentalism out of the relevant conversation, I think. Um, so I don't see these, like, I, I don't think the conversation is about uh, is it the state or is it a communal solution? I and, and, you know, the answer will, well, depends on where, it depends on the means. But that doesn't mean that you should, that doesn't mean that the conversation about the role of the state 
in mediating individual political agency and collective benefit isn't the central question of managing the environment. Uh, and I don't think that you know, uh, communal solutions, uh, the commons, uh, gives you the um, you know gives you an answer to that question. I'd love to follow up on that, but I'll, I'll hold there for a moment and invite Ida to join. Yeah, it was just yeah fascinating discussion, and I was just listening to your previous arguments about state versus community collectives and so on, um. But then when you think about, so I'm currently writing this thing where I'm looking at energy across Ethiopia, Malawi, and Mozambique. Mm. Um, and one of the things that I'm looking into is the role of the state um, in facilitating or not facilitating community energy and so on. But pretty much from there, from my experiences working in India and so on, there seems to be this fundamental tension really between a state's focus on big infrastructural development solutions that that sort of uh, can supposedly provide benefits to a large population as opposed to smaller populations or um, the grandiosity of big infrastructural developments, big dam, let's have a nice party and, you know, and, and inaugurate this dam and so on, um, versus the more context specific benefits that you might get through collective action. Uh, and I'm not saying that in any uh, non-nuanced way, I do know that collective action has its own set of challenges. Um, I was just wondering how, so, uh, Dustin was mentioning that you've worked with the NCF and so on, and I was wondering how, whether you've come across some of these tensions in the work, in your work as a practitioner, really, and how, whether you've negotiated that in some way, and, or whether the organization has and so on. Um, yeah, I mean, all the time, right? Um, because, uh, I mean, most states that I've worked with outside of the ones where I've lived in, and I'm always sort of careful to have opinions about other people's states. I have a lot of opinions about the states that I sort of belong to, but my observation is that a lot of them, you know, I, for example, at one point I was quite involved in uh, in developing the Green Growth Plan for Ethiopia when Melissanawi was around. And, uh, you know, this was a time when Ethiopia was the darling of the development world, and uh, it was growing at double digits, and you know the idea was it would become middle income by 2025, and energy actually played a big role in that. You know, and the green, you know, in fact, the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam is filled now, and so one legacy of that period is this one. Now let's put out put down the first stone, right? When the week after Mubarak fell in Egypt, um, and it's heartbreaking to see the last year and a half, two years of civil war and, you know, all of that unwinding completely, right? And ultimately that has, you know, development indicators had improved in Ethiopia, uh, but individual political agency hadn't, uh, right? And so in the end, that was its undoing. And so at the risk of sounding like a 19th century liberal, I do think that some... Some of this is about as simple as that, right? Do people have agency in the society in which they live? And almost no environmental problem gets solved if you, in the long run if that's not true. And yes, it's imperfect in the US, and yes, it's imperfect in the, in the United Kingdom, and yes, it's imperfect in Italy, but the fact is that my friends in Ethiopia had far less political agency there than I did here. Um, and so, so that's one observation, right? And, but, you know, if you're a 
working in the field and you, you, you do with what you have, right? So the point that Dustin was making earlier and, and that tension emerges over the, all the time. Because on the one hand, you have a solution with the Borana pastoralists in southern Oromia where, you know, they have long-standing uh, mechanisms to deal with drought. But of course, they require a context that's completely different from the federal ethnically divided uh, you know, republic that um, that is Ethiopia today. And so, how much do you, you know, do you try and render those people entirely ahistorical and just fix them in time and say, well, that solution is the right solution, which is allow them to pursue that, versus the legitimacy of, and that, and again, legitimacy is a key word here. Right? If you had a legitimate government and a legitimate leadership who's trying to take a country in some direction, how much do they, you know, do they do that? And that, you know, arguably, that's what, you know, Roosevelt was doing in the 1920s and 30s. Um, so, so I encountered it all the time. I don't have any great wisdom to say other than, yes, it exists and you deal with it. But I, don't th- I do think that we, we are uh, going to face problems, the nature of which transcends the resources of small communities. That I'm pretty sure of. And so that's part of the, the problem here. Whereas we tend to think that the units of management is the individual or the small community in which social networks are built. The fact of the matter is that a storm in the middle latitudes is a thousand kilometers in diameter. And that is invariant of the human politics that live under it. And so if you've, you know, if you live in a country that's made that an irrelevant fact, physical fact, then, you know, of course, you can operate at all sorts of levels. But there are some, you know, there are some scales that are, it's not scale invariant. The problem is not scale invariant. And it turns out, I think, that we will find that uh, in, for many countries, not all, but for many, the problems will require organizing social resources that are national, international. Europe will be a unit, you know, for many of the things that we have to solve. Um, and so then you are, you know, in this situation where you have to, um, you have to mediate, you know, different interests where individual communities just don't have the full information. It's not a market. It's not a information is not transparent to everybody, right? I'll give you a practical example on energy. You know, we had a major problem here in Italy um, because in the south of Italy we had this gas pipeline called TAP that had to cross the Adriatic and come to hook up into into uh, into Italy. And it was classic local community governance of, you know, uh, ancient olives and kind of local traditional use of the landscape versus the state wanted to build its wise elephant. And that was the rhetoric of those opposing. And those in favor were saying, well, no, this is a strategic piece of the energy infrastructure. Um, then, of course, the Russian uh, invasion happened and suddenly all the gas that is going to get is going to come through that pipeline. Right. I'm not saying anybody, you know, I'm, not, I'm sure the state wasn't, you know, the, the government wasn't predicting this when it was arguing for it. But I'm just saying, you know, it, these are time dependent issues. And so back to your point around, is it really about big, uh, just about big infrastructure versus small local solutions? Or is it more about the question of the tension between the legitimacy of a national vision and the legitimacy and importance of individual and communal agency. That's a tension. It's often, it's often portrayed as a, 
as a choice. It's not a choice. It's a tension that's inherent. And to me, the question is, how do you build institutions that can manage that tension, not make it go away? It will never go away. But how do you manage that tension? And my answer is, well, you need healthy republics. And then your question might be, well, what does that mean? What is a healthy republic? You know, particularly when you're managing tension on environmental issues. And the answer is, we don't know because we don't have them. You know, the oldest and most important republic on the planet, which is America, doesn't have environment in the constitution, doesn't talk about landscape anywhere in its kind of founding documents. Um, and so I think we have a lot of work to do to, to define environmental republicanism in a way that's operational and that creates institutions that can manage that, uh, that tension. Sorry, that was a very long answer. Apologies. <laughs> oh, totally agree with that as well. I like the answer, Hita. Did you want to follow up anything? Um, no, go for it. Okay. Um, there's an irony to this, Julio, that we invite a practitioner to a podcast and talk just about political theory. And I wanted to, to switch gears in a moment towards some of your experience with um, both your, your work at McKinsey and the Nature Conservancy. But just as, as one footnote, um, maybe just a, a point for um, further discussion is that... So far, we've talked about uh, this binary of, you know, community versus states, um, individuals versus community. And, um, and there is this well-established discussion um, in the work by Vincent Ostrom that we move beyond uh, conceptions of the state as monoliths and focus on citizens as sovereigns. And including the fact that they're subject to multiple governments rather than just the nation state as an example. And you've made a really powerful argument for the role of the state as a mediator between the individual and collective benefit. And uh, you've also earlier described uh, this notion of subsidiarity of trying to you know, retain decisions at the lowest level possible. And now you've just told us that despite everyone expecting the ingredients for a healthy environmental republic, um, that we still have a lot of work to do. We don't know them. And I guess what I, I this is more of a comment and observation to, for reflection rather than something, um, you know, as a, of a question. But, but my question for you is, is, is the role of the state limited to the nation state? What do you see as the role of of governments created by uh, individuals and communities at other levels um, in terms of your your vision or your model for the environmental republic and the, the different you know shapes or varieties that may take yeah i mean I, I you know i'm not as you might have observed i'm not really a theorist and so i'm i think mostly in the examples that i know and i don't know that that point is all the point you just made of you know actually the state is a the state, uh, within quotes, is actually a kind of complicated infrastructure at many levels, and I, I don't know. This particularly controversial in in reality, right? I mean, uh, the U.S. is a good example of this. You know, the U.S. is a complicated uh, hierarchy of governance mechanisms at all levels, and oddly enough, it's ended up creating mostly a judicial route to managing issues across states. You know, think of the Appalachicola-Flint uh, system, right? I mean, and, and states sort of uh, fighting over that river. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I use the state, I suppose I'm using the state a, a little loosely here. Um, and in fact, you know, I'm, I'm reminded that, you know, Italy, just come to my own country, which I know quite well, Italy has a, a, a constitution 
<clears throat> since 1948, which is inspired by a whole bunch of other constitutions that came before, but it's the oldest existing, uh, you know, current constitution to have an article, um, to have an article, uh, to protect the environment. Yeah. So if you, somebody, I think some foundation at some point did this survey of when did constitutional provisions for the protection of environment come into the constitutions of the countries and Italy was actually the first one in 1948. There were other ones before, actually. The Spanish Constitution of 31 had it. The Weimar Republic had it. But those are not obviously working anymore, right? So, um, and, and then there was a big uptick around Rio in the 90s. You know, this thing exploded. And I went to read the debates of the Constitutional Assembly in 1948 on that article. What do you, because the thing says that the state, uh, and, and then it, it's, uh, the, the translation is it will exercise tutelage over the landscape. Uh, and it talks about paisaggio, uh, and paisaggio is, is not quite landscape because it's actually very explicitly culturally constructed. Paisaggio means what it looks like, right? So it's a, it's a historical, it's a heritage, if you will. And uh, there was a long debate in the, uh, in, that, in the writing of that article as to whether they should say the state or the republic. Should it be the state or should it be the republic? And the difference, of course, is that in Italy, uh, because the, the, the republic is actually made up of many institutions, one of which is the central government, the state, but then you also have regions because Italy was designed to be a semi-federal system. And there was this very explicit debate as to whether the management of what the landscape looks like is a unitarian problem, it's a, it's a kind of national issue, or is it should it be susceptible to the values of the different... Uh, regions and there's 21 of them in Italy, right? And then there are, you know, uh, many provinces which in within with each of those. And so the the structure of the republic is already deeply subsidiary. There are a lot of levels of governance, and the question simply was, where do you assign power over this one issue, which is the management of the territory? You could say that for water, etc. So all all republics and all state institutions are massively structured, and really the debate we ought to be having is where does the power reside for the different questions that you're answering. Uh, now, they, they ended up in the state, and we have a, almost a perfect experiment. Italy offers these things. You know, Walter Putnam, the famous political scientist, uh, used Italy as an example because it has these 21, uh, you know, 21 regions, and it's also a national government. And, and in the environmental space, it's also a kind of interesting example because then we did a constitutional reform some years ago, uh, about 20 years ago, where we reattributed that responsibility of managing the landscape to the region. And so now we have, you know, 20 different forestry codes, for example, as a very practical uh, example of, of, of what happened there. And my uh, impression in the case of Italy specifically is that that was a deterioration of the citizens' political agency over the landscape. Because, in fact, uh, you know, practically the central government was a better intermediator of the fundamental strategic choices that we had than 21 different uh, regions. And one of the reasons is, um, and the European Union has complicated this, but there's a very dif big difference between a state that can print money and get debt on the international markets if you are doing capital-intensive transformation of the landscape versus uh, a region that can't. Uh, and, and lots of more details about that. But anyway, but my point is, the answer is it depends. I think that the act, I mean, it's a false simplification to say that the problem is, oh, the state, we should be talking about all the, all states are 
you know, deeply structured and complicated. The real debate is the legislation that attributes the power over the particular question to some part of that structure. Um, and I think the answer kind of is, is entirely dependent on the nature of the, of the society that we're talking about. Okay. Well, there's, there's more we could discuss, but I want us to move towards uh, kind of final dis- set of discussions and uh, to switch gears from the book. So before we do, let me just pause and say, is there anything else you'd like to say about the book, the story, the argument, something that's been misunderstood? Um, well, other than I encourage very much people to buy it, you know, <laughs> I should say that. Um, uh, uh, no, I mean, I, I, I think, um, you know. I mean, the come book, on, there's got to be something at this stage of having a book out. Oh, if I had had all these conversations before, I would have done this little twist a bit differently. Well, you know, I can tell you that, it, you know, I end the book um, circa 2010 because the 2010 happened to be a climatologically interesting year, and lots of things happened because it was a particularly strong uh, La Nina, is a very unusual drought um, over Russia and Ukraine, yeah. uh, which which had a huge impact on the food markets of the world, and so it was a interesting little case study in in kind of you know suddenly you you just hammer through the water system of the planet. Uh, all these different countries at one point, and you see what happens. And lots of things happened, right? And now you can debate, because again, I'm not a determinist in the sense of not, you know, but after after that drought, you know, and we ended up having the Arab Spring, we ended up having, you know, the first, you know, Melis put down the first stone on the Grand Ethiopian Resistance Dam, you know, China decided to buy up all the grain in the world. I mean, there's lots of different things that happened. It wasn't just because, again, people have agency. These were all policy decisions, but it's kind of interesting that, you know, that there's a sort of sequence here. Um, of course, in the years since, and one of the big questions, of course, was that I was observing that, you know, if you had stopped the clock at 2010, China was clearly playing a big role from an engineering perspective around the world. The biggest developer of renewable energy in the world is, is Power China and Three Gorges Dam Company. And, you know, they are being the service providers in a way that Bechtel never was at the time of Truman, you know, it's like uh, the amount of money, also because China has far more resources than, you know, America had at the time. Um, and so I was observing this and I end the book on a question, which is what's the political project behind that expansion? We know that they're offering loans. We know that money's flowing. We know that infrastructure is being built. And, you know, some of it is good. I mean, you know, because... You know, and it poses all sorts of interesting questions for institutions like the World Bank. What's the World Bank for in a world in which China can extend way more money as loans and offer technical assistance? You know, if you want to meet somebody who's built a dam, you can't got to go to China. I mean, you're not going to go to the U.S. and find somebody who's built a one gigawatt dam, right? So I ended the book there. Of course, since then, Xi Jinping's uh, 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 kind of government has really started revealing what the political project may be. And it's it's not terribly attractive from my point of view. Uh, it's, you know, and, and I'll say, I, um, I remember uh, when Xi Jinping made his first trip to Davos, um, you know, a few years after, and I was, this was before I wrote the book, but I didn't include it in the book, and he proclaimed himself the defender of the environment on behalf of the world. And, you know, I, and I, I have to confess that I, a few chills went down my, <laughs> my spine at the time because 
What's the environment? Defending from who? You know, like there are all these questions that show up when somebody who has that much power and is an authoritarian leader decides that they're going to wear the green mantle. Which is, again, another reason why I think environmentalists are losing a beat if they don't have a theory of politics. Mm. Um, and so I think, I, I, you know, I don't wish I would have written the book later. I will just write another one, Dustin. But <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I do think that the world's gotten far more interesting. Yeah. Uh, and I also think that, uh, you know, we have in the last couple of months, I think we've seen the evidence also of talking about governments, supranational governments failing dramatically. And so, again, I think we are having conversations about the nation state for that reason, right? Because it's very clear that that's the unit that's, you know, doing the more damage, making the bigger waves, whatever you want to call it. But in the hands of the wrong people, uh, you know, does a lot of damage. And I think you've done a really good job in the book of, of pointing to this as a dialect that's played through history, whatever, dating from the Roman Empire and the way nation states make geopolitical orders that that connect distant lands and, and places. Yeah. And that kind of circles back some earlier themes. But why don't we move um, to the final um, 10 minutes or so to zoom out. And I mean, one will will conclude uh, just to kind of warn you and preview with your chance to give an outlook of, of, of what the future um, you know, kind of trends are that, that this audience should be thinking about based on your arguments and experience. Um, but I wanted to take the time, at least five or so minutes, to hear your perspective from your former hat with the Nature Conservancy. And uh, you've worked a lot on, on the water agenda within the Nature Conservancy, but also as Chief Strategy Officer, mm -hmm. really thinking about questions of impact and and how to scale and some of the themes that have come up around the margins of our discussion today. I wanted to start with one, which is that many times in conservation um, policy and, and governance, we focus on um, the importance of participation and of community involvement. And I just wanna hear your perspective on the role of participation in communities in conservation and the kinds of work that Nature Conservancy you know, was doing and you're seeing in this area? Um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's a complicated question. I mean, in a way, of course, you know, participation is important and good. And, you know, at a superficial level, everybody sort of says, oh, yes, we need to. But the problem is that uh, where does the legitimacy come from for those who curate that participation? You know, and that's one of the kind of fundamental problems of many conservation organizations. In fact, many civil society organizations that are international that don't operate within the sort of boundaries of a society, but are actually, you know, uh, parachute in on, not necessarily with their employees, many times, you know, employ local personnel, but, but sort of parachute in a, a view of the world. And rather than engaging in a dialectic about the politics, right, or, or at the sort of highest level of what are the rules of the society, you know, they engage on these more technical levels, but then, you know, bring all these, uh, uh, you know, uh, bring their particular point of view in how they curate participation. And, uh, and of course, particip participation uh, means, typically it's well-intended, I mean, it means that you're trying to give agency to people that maybe are not represented in a political system or that you judge being marginalized or, you know, so you're trying to rebalance something. But it's a very, very slippery and difficult thing to do, which requires enormous amounts of care and 
and knowledge of the real dynamics. And sometimes this is done well. Some of my colleagues in the Nature Conservancy did a really good job of this, but but the risks are always enormous. And and it always boils down to the fact that if you're lucky and you have really good people who understand the politics, the real local politics enough to curate and assist in the curation of that participation in a way that really reflects the underlying structures within society, then you can achieve something. Um, but you can also do a lot of damage, right? You can just bring to the table people that are not all that relevant or people that are relevant, but you know, it's a it's an alternative it's an alternative governance to the one that actually in the long run needs to work in order to empower people to actually be uh, authors of their own life. So it's um so so it's a it's a it's a, it's a complicated and 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 um, and uh, and fraught area. One of the ways in which you get around it, or you kind of try to govern yourself as you do that, is you use international institutions, you know, free and prior informed consent, and so sort of all these tools of the international order, uh, which again, though, are predicated on a rules-based system, which is currently crumbling before our eyes. Right, so I'm actually quite worried about. I think that the last 40 years and environmental and conservation work over the last 40 years was operating under an illusion that the 1992 uh, summit. Was the end of history, and uh, and you know I and so all of the tools and all the globalization of the tools of conservation and environment were predicated on that, and I think it was a mistake. We now are realizing, and uh, and I, I I don't know what that means for global environmental organizations, but I think they are they're in for a rough ride. Also because you know the fact of the matter, I mean one of my great frustrations when I was still at the Conservancy and. Um, and one of the reasons that I ultimately, you know, I, I, I've grown a little bit, I would say skeptical, but sort of uh, uh, tired of a particular mode of engagement, at least for me, right? I mean, it's completely legitimate for others, but is that th there's a real resistance to examining that work in the same way that, let's say, the Tennessee Valley Authority was examined. It's kind of interesting, right? I mean, before we were talking about big dams and... And uh, those are under-examined, actually. I mean, the reality is that there are very, very few exposed studies of whether, in fact, the thesis that dams are bad for people or good for people uh, are, is, is, has any grounds. I mean, there are some, but not very many. And you'll remember, uh, you know, uh, Dustin, maybe, Vita, you'll, you'll, you'll have seen this too. You know, Ramesh Patia tried this in, in, the, in the World Bank some years ago. That study was, that book was vastly criticized. It's not like I've seen a lot of alternative books that try to do econometric studies of the actual impact of those dams that we, you know, the environmentalists love to criticize, right? So, and that standard, which is already not very high, is not even applied to the, you know, nature-based solutions or interventions in conservation or the value of parks, you know? Parts. You want to protect thirty percent of the landscape. If you if you put, I mean, I'm a humanist. Maybe you've detected this. I put the I put the person at the heart of all of my action. So this question of whether protecting thirty percent of biodiversity, land, terrestrial, marine, etc., is that actually going to improve the lot of the people that we're talking about? I mean, that's a empirical question, or at least should be susceptible to empirical analysis. It won't be ever perfect, but it, it, it's best than not even trying. And I fear that a lot of conservation is not even really trying. The development world is a bit better in that sense. I think, you know, developing institutions at least try imperfectly to measure themselves. I think conservation 
you know, it manages itself through actions rather, you know, rather than outcomes. Um, and so, yeah, so, you know, I think it's, um, back to your question, I think pulling out all these organizations and allowing them communities to self-organize, uh, then sure, I do wonder how much of that would happen if there wasn't this constant input of people trying to develop projects, highly participatory projects. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I, you know, I don't have a definite opinion on this, as you can tell, I'm rambling. But um, No, no, I appreciate it because what I've taken away are, are two things at least. First, that um, participation must, must be you know, in, embedded within um, the, the political context and the, the authority and legitimacies, you know, um, structures that are in place. And that uh, there needs to be greater attention to evaluation and more systematic oh, assessment yeah. of That's, uh, that. And I think that will be welcome and in, in practiced by many of the audience listening to this. Interestingly, you know, the we had this funny moment where we trust science. I'm a scientist, right? I mean, I, I am, I am, I love science, but we were sort of in this. Uh, you know what Anna Harrant thought was very dangerous when science was about nuclear bombs. You know, it's this moment when scientists have become philosopher kings of our of our society. And in fact, one instance of this is that article, constitutional article I was telling you about in Italy that includes the environment has now been amended two months ago to include words like biodiversity and ecosystems. I can guarantee that no, you know, the vast majority of citizens of this country don't know what biodiversity or ecosystems are. And it's now one of the rules of this society. That's a problem. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and so, anyway. Well, I think you'll have a lot of people on this um, podcast taking up your call for constitutional reform and for this uh, discussion of, of what makes for an environmental republic uh, in, in the next decades to come. I wanted to just close by giving you an opportunity to say anything else that you wanted to share with the group. No, I mean, well, I think, um, you know, I hope these these topics, I mean, whether it's you know, governance writ large, I mean, maybe I'm saying I'm preaching to the choir here, but governance writ large, I think, is the issue that we are going to face. And, and I worry a little bit about the fact that we are all having conversations about, like, fragmentary fragments of the governance question. But... Um, you know, in a way, one of my great frustrations is that we're not having a higher level political discussion and a discussion about ideas uh, when it comes to these issues of resources and governance of resources. You know, you said earlier, you mentioned, you, you I think it was you or Hita, I forget, but somebody mentioned the sovereignty of the individual, yeah. you know, and uh, the front piece of Hobbes' Leviathan is a person made up of people, right, tiny little people. And... Uh, the problem of, of that political tradition is that it never really engaged the question of landscape and territory. Partly because, you know, by the time people started elaborating beyond Hobbes, you know, we were in this revolution and other things were interesting, people were urbanizing. And I, I think that all these debates about commons and about management of resources, which is going to be central to the 21st century and to our kind of survival on the planet, require deep thinking at the ideas level on, okay, what are the political institutions, the political theory that underwrites them? So I think, you know, this podcast and these discussions are really important. I bring my sort of, you know, modest skills, you know, and certainly not the skills of political theorists to this, but, but, but I just do it in part because I don't see it happening anywhere outside of pockets in academia, and that's a real problem, you know? Thank you, Julio. That was fantastic.
we, um, we unfortunately have run out of time, um, but this has been so terrific. Thank you for listening. We plan more discussions with people like Julia situated at the messy but important interface of research and practice.